Hello, and thank you for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church Maryville here in Maryville, Tennessee. If you haven't already, you can visit our website to find out more information about our church or to find our full audio archive with all of our messages. So you can find all of that at www.vineyardchurch.us, or you can also subscribe on Apple and Google Podcasts. Now, let's hear this week's message. All right, guys, uh, every summer we spend a few weeks in the Psalms, so we're starting that today, and we are going to be in Psalm 92. Um, I won't actually get to Psalm 92 till almost the end of the message, though, so a lot of preamble for this one. Psalm 92 is, however, we are going to get there eventually. Um, Here's the thing. Um, The Bible very clearly teaches a process of spiritual maturity, okay, that we're supposed to be moving from one stage to the next. And there's lots of language. All the authors in scripture uh, point to this. Jesus is teaching. Uh, The apostle Paul talked about going from milk to meat. I wish I could give you meat, but you're still on milk because it had not yet matured. That's 1 Corinthians 3. He says, you continue that process until Christ is fully formed in you. That's Galatians chapter 4. According to the apostle John, uh, this is in uh, 1 John chapter 2. He talks about us as um, little children in the Lord, as young adults in the Lord, and then as spiritual mothers and fathers. It's 1 John 2. The Apostle Peter talks about this as well. He says we move from faith to morality to godliness. That's 2 Peter chapter 1. And honestly, I could go on and on and on and on and on with the biblical examples. We are supposed to be on a journey to spiritual maturity. Being born again is a lot like being born the first time. You come out as an infant, and then you are expected to grow and develop into maturity, and if not, something is terribly wrong. If an infant remains an infant at birth and continues on as an infant, something is terribly wrong. We are, same when we are born again, supposed to be on a spiritual path, a journey with the Lord maturing The trouble is, how exactly do you know where you're at on that journey and whether or not you're headed in the right direction? Because the best I can tell, there aren't like spiritual mile markers. Like when you go down the interstate every mile, you know you've come another mile further. You marks along the way. I don't quite see that. There aren't spiritual growth charts like maybe you had as a kid growing up along a door jam or something. I was this tall and then a year later I was this much taller. We don't really have that. I don't think that I know of that Jesus is handing out report cards every six or nine weeks or so. And so it's hard to know where we're on track, where we're not, if we're moving along as we should down the spiritual journey. And this is not uh, a new question for people to be asking. This is a very, 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 very old question. As long as people have been on a journey with Jesus, people have been wondering where they're at on that journey and whether or not they're progressing forward, looking for something of a spiritual map to mark the way, to know where they are and if they're headed in the right direction direction. And to that end, throughout church history, these models have been developed from scripture to help us try to get a grid for that, to try to frame this up, to know if we're trending in the right direction. And what I'm going to do today is teach you guys uh, the oldest that I could find, and actually I think it's the best, the oldest of these models that I could find. This goes all the way back, think about this, all the way back to the second century. So to the 100s, They formulated, early Christians formulated this list. It is called the three ways. Everybody say the three ways. Okay, I'm going to tell them to you now. The three ways are awakening, purgation, 
illumination, union. The three ways, awakening, purgation, illumination, union, the three ways. Now, you probably have a couple of problems with that list. Number one, that's very clearly four ways. The list is very old. It's not so old that they couldn't count. We'll get to that. The other thing is, what do any of those words mean? That could be the other problem that you might have. First, let me deal with the, uh, the, three, the three, four problem that we're um, dealing with here. Um, the ancients, when they wrote this long, long, long ago, recognized that awakening, which is their word for salvation. So you can just in your mind plug in. We're going we're gonna to update this list in a minute with words that seem more 21st century as opposed to 1st century, okay? Um, or 2nd century. Um, awakening was salvation, and that was considered, this is actually really insightful. That was considered step zero. It's step zero. Okay, and that makes sense because what did you do in order to get saved exactly? What, what exactly did you accomplish? What work? Because we are saved by grace through faith and not by works, lest any man should boast. It is a free gift of God's grace and mercy extended to us. You did zero. So it's step zero. And that's really helpful for us to bear in mind. Let me tell you a ridiculous story, okay? I don't even know if I should, but here we go. Here's a ridiculous story. When I was in college, first class that I went to, it was like, um, oh, what do they call it when you, oh, an orientation. It was an orientation class. We're going to get to know you and you're going to get to know us. First class I attended. First day of that class, they said, because we're going to try to get to know each other, um, why don't you write like a short little autobiography? You know, three or four pages, tell us about you. And I'm all fired up. I go home, first day, in my dorm room. I'm a college student now. I'm going to write an autobiography. And I'm going to write it with lots of big fancy words. And I thought, maybe I'll start with something interesting about me. Something interesting about me was that um, my mom was only in labor with me for 12 minutes. The doctor never even got there. Like, well, that's an interesting thing. I'll start there. But the problem was I was confused. I thought the word birth and conception were synonyms. I thought, I thought that conception was just a fancy way to say birth. And I'm in college now, big brain, big words. Let's use the big words. And so the first sentence of my first college paper was, and I quote directly, I was conceived in a rather torpedo-like fashion in only 12 minutes, period. That's a true story. That's a true story. I tell, my dad's in the room, I'm telling you that story. I wrote that, that was the first sentence I wrote in college, and I went on to graduate. Proof that you can turn things around, you know? You can start at one place and make your way, you can really turn things around. I was confused about two things, all right? Number one, I was confused about what those words meant, and number two, I was confused that the fact that I was born quickly had anything to do with me. That I, that, that was a part of my story, and that's not a part of my, mom gets all the credit. 100% of the credit, I did zero. I can't stand atop the mountain with my cape flapping in the wind and saying, you know, it was a small canal, but I powered through. I'm a motivated child. I couldn't say that. It had zero to do with me. Because, and listen, being born again is a lot like being born the first time. It has nothing to do with you. It's step zero. Step zero. Now, 
we're going to look at these three ways, and I've updated them. Let's look at a, a, a bit more of a 20, 20, uh, 21st century list. Um, and these are the words that maybe will sound more familiar, but it's the same concept just in terms that, that maybe we can work with. Step zero is salvation. The free gift of God's grace given to you. It's step zero. Now, here's the thing, and I'm just going to, real quick, there's this thing that sometimes you go to church and a preacher will tell you that if you come forward and you say a prayer and you say all the right things in that prayer, then that actually is all of the steps. And that's actually none of the steps. Now, just like being born, and you're born again, that's everything. You know, like if I was never born, then nothing else, like I don't have a story, I don't exist. It's the most important thing, but it's no work of my own. Step two is discipline. Step or pardon me, step one is discipline, step two, delight, step three, depth. Um, I'm going to spend most of the time here talking about discipline here. Um, we're going to work our way, though, through this list. We can keep that up as we go. Um, now, the first one, discipline, or really the second one, discipline. Um, in the old school list, this was called purgation. And you might, when you hear purgation, you might think purgatory. Um, like I said, this list is very, very old. This is about a thousand years before the Catholics even conceived of the notion of purgatory. So this isn't based on purgatory at all. This is based on the idea that our old ways, our old sinful ways would be purged out of us. That's what this is about. And I've renamed, renamed this step from purgation to discipline, uh, because it refers to our being disciplined in both senses of the word. There's one sense in which you can choose to be disciplined, where you choose to order your life in such a way, you structure your life, you, you impose discipline upon yourself so that your life looks the way you want it to look. And in Christianity, when you find life with Jesus, when you take step zero, step one looks like spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines. So that's things like taking time every day to pray and study God's word, time in prayer and reflection and worship. It's being committed to a body of Christ and gathering to worship as we are here now, being in community, being known in a place, confessing our sins to one another, keeping a Sabbath and trusting the Lord in that, fasting and prayer. These are spiritual disciplines. And you enact upon yourself these spiritual disciplines in order to order your life around the truth of Jesus so that your life gets organized around the greater reality, which is Christ is king. And if you've been around here the last year plus, I'll just say the last year plus, you may have picked up on the fact that like, look, man, I'm doing really well. I'm happy. It's a good, I will look back on this season as a really good season. But in the midst of all of that, I have for a year plus now just been carrying around a measure of grief. I've just, in the, while that's been going on on this sort of simultaneous track, there's been like some real grief that I believe is from the Lord because I keep perceiving that with a great many Christians, I have no idea what a percentage would be. I wouldn't dare to put one, but a great many Christians honestly never take step one. They take step zero and they think it's over. They never take step one where they start to arrange their lives around these spiritual disciplines, which brings me to the second sense of this word, discipline. When we build disciplines into our lives, the Lord uses that to bring discipline into our lives in the sense of correction. The Lord disciplined those whom he loves, right? Hebrews. Discipline. He steps in and addresses the sin that's in our lives. That's step one. Now, the ancients, when they put this list together way back in the second century, um, they actually broke this 
step discipline, which they called purgation, into four steps. And we're going to, as quickly as I can here, go through those four steps. And wouldn't you know it, there's actually four. How about that? So we're going to do a subheading here. We're going to do like a list within a list. So that means you have to really focus and stay with me here. But under this step of discipline, um, there are four. And here's the first um, that the Lord addresses as he disciplines us through our spiritual disciplines. It's what they called gross sins. And that doesn't mean like icky or disgusting. Um, Again, written a long time ago. Um, That means like obvious and blatant sins, okay? And so Jesus and Paul several times gives us lists of sins in the Bible and then says, obviously, followers of Jesus aren't gonna be involved in any of that. Okay, so one of those lists is in Galatians 5, 19. I'm gonna read you that list quickly. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I haven't seen the show, but based on the gist that I'm getting, that basically means anything that happens on Game of Thrones. Pretty much that, anything in that whole is basically listed as gross or, or obvious sins obvious sins. And what they were saying, these early Christians were saying, you know what? We figured this out. Those are like the first things to go. When people order their lives and they really surrender to Jesus and they step into spiritual disciplines and the Lord steps in, it's like in the middle of a drunken orgy, the Lord goes, hey, uh, not anymore. Like that's not you anymore. Like these things get addressed quickly. They're the first thing to go. The second on the list is conscious sins, they call them. And this is kind of like things that we know about, but they don't seem so obvious or so blatant, and therefore they kind of seem socially acceptable. Um, They don't align at all with the heart of Jesus, but they kind of seem like, eh, it's okay, we can look past it. Materialism, gossip, selfishness, ways that we demean or exclude one another. These are things that don't seem so blatant or obvious, things you can get away with socially. You might not even be called out by your Christian friends from church, but they are still, bottom line, incongruent with the way of Jesus. They don't fit. He addresses those things next. The third thing, again, through our spiritual discipline, the Lord meeting in that, and he has the love and kindness to discipline and correct us. The third thing um, that they listed was unconscious sins. And so these are the things that aren't even external so much. These are our motives. These are the reasons why we do things. That gets purged out as well. And this is where God gets to your heart. This is God getting to your, your motive, your why. What's underneath? Okay, yeah, yeah, we address the external stuff. What's underneath that? What is it in you that is inclined to act in that way? Those first three, gross sins, conscious sins, and unconscious sins. So I want to stay here for a second and then look at these three, uh, these three things that the Lord addresses at us in order and, and just give us an example to sort of make it a little bit more real. And that first uh, list of, of gross sins or obvious sins um, in the Galatians 5 text, it listed specifically fits of anger. So let's talk about anger. We talked about anger a lot the last few weeks. So we can sort of look at anger in th- through these three lenses to kind of see what we're talking about. So uh, a fit of anger would be just an explosion, right? Unfettered rage. Off you go, flying off the proverbial handle. This is like you get so mad at your spouse that you're so frustrated. You grab like a big, like hard bound book and you throw it at their face and it goes flying end over end and the spine of the book hits your partner who you love right in the face. That is a fit of anger. That is a gross sin. Now, if that story sounds oddly specific, it's because it's a true story. Sharon did that to me. She threw a book at my face and it hit me right that we're not sure that might be the white patch in my eyebrow actually she hit me so hard with the spine of the book now 
that's a true story. The more true version of the story is that she wasn't angry. She was joking. She thought I was looking. But I vowed that day to never let her live it down. So I bring it up in a sermon about once a year. So here we go. A fit of anger is I'm so frustrated and unglued that I throw a book. I hit your spouse in the face with a book, okay? A second one, these conscious sins, as if somebody goes, oh, yeah, that's obvious, that blatant. There's no way I would throw a book in a fit of rage in my spouse's face. That's a gross sin. That is unconscionable. I would not do that. But I would say really cutting things. And I'd say threatening things to make them live in fear. Or I'd give them the silent treatment or the cold shoulder when I'm upset. And no, I wouldn't throw a book. But I'd say stuff that cuts deep. That's conscious sins. We know it's not right, but you don't read about it in the news either. The third thing on the list, though, are the unconscious sins, where you go, I, I, would, I would never throw a book. I would never say those horrible things. But I might, underneath all of that, hold on to resentment and contempt and refuse to forgive, like, say, for someone throwing a book at you and hitting you in the face with that book, even though they were just joking. Um, that's the unconscious stuff. This is the inner work. And I'm pausing here for a minute. I want to sit with this for a minute because a lot of people get stuck here for a long time. It's a long process to purge our hearts. Often it's things we don't ever even see. And so I just want to point out that if you never actually get to and through level three, then all you're ever going to deal with in your own life are the external behaviors. And the church has been accused historically, in some cases rightfully so, of only dealing with the outer stuff and not dealing with the inner stuff. But if all you ever do is deal with the external stuff, listen, then the absolute best you can possibly be is a Pharisee. Do you remember what Jesus said about the Pharisees? He said, you're like whitewashed tombs, clean on the outside, but on the inside, you're filled with dead men's bones. That's three. And number four, this is sort of vague. We've got to kind of put a finer point on it. But number four is trust. And trust is basically the deep, these like these deep inner postures wherein we don't really rely on God. And the way that manifests itself is usually through good things, uh, but we can make idols out of those things. So my life's not the way I want it to be. I want to get things better. I want to, but I don't look to Jesus for those things. Instead, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start a new exercise regimen or a new diet, or I'm going to get a new job, or I'm going to go for this promotion, or I'm going to get married, or I'm going to have a child, or I'm going to use some new self-help methodology or some strategy for living, or I'm going to get super organized. I'm going to watch all the right things. And I want to be clear, all of those are good things based on good values, things that should be pursued, but they can also all be idols because you can place your trust in things like that and not in Jesus. And this fourth step where the Lord begins to discipline and purge our hearts is when you realize, so what about whether or not it, it lands on a sin list or not? Do I really trust and rely upon God for everything? Now that's step one, and that's discipline. Now, if that sounds discouraging to think that all of that is only step one, maybe this will be a little bit helpful. Um, these steps overlap a lot, okay? They overlap a lot. You'll never be done with step one. There will never be a point at which you say, I no longer have to submit the inner posture of my heart to trust the Lord. No, <laughs> you're always going to be doing that. You're always going to be, these are going to overlap. You'll always be in step one, even in the best case, but... Listen, 
You cannot, and hear me on this because I'm not sure this gets said enough in church. You cannot and will not experience the joy of step two until you've made some serious progress in step one. It's not until you have seriously progressed in step one, being disciplined before the Lord and allowing the Lord to discipline you before you experience step two, which is delight. Delight. And the ancients called this illumination, really highlighting the fact that there's this whole part of the world that you didn't see before and you now see. Delight is essentially, it's just the fruit of step one. When you actually do step one, delight is just, just what happens. When you've made serious progress in allowing Jesus to, fo- to really form your behavior and your heart and your mind, listen, there's a shift in your worldview and it becomes profound delight. I wonder if you can relate to that. So you find lots of places in scriptures you read, especially in the Psalms, which you're spending some time in now, especially in the Psalms, you see people who are just overcome with sheer joy. And for some of us, maybe that's not super familiar. One of the places where this stands out, you find this a bunch of times in the Psalms, that David especially says, I delight in the law of the Lord. That's a weird statement. You ever see people like, yeah, the rules. Man, I love the rules. Thank God for the rules. Rules. That's That's what he's saying. He's saying, I delight in the law of the Lord. Now, why would someone delight, find sheer, irrepressible joy in the lists of rules that are available to us? I can tell you why. Because he's been through step one, and in the process, the Lord has profoundly shifted his heart. And out of that, after after he walks in discipline, and the Lord in love disciplines him, his worldview starts to shift, and he realizes the absolute best thing in this world period is walking with Jesus. It's the best that this world has to offer. All I want is to live well for Jesus. All I want is to please him with my life. And if that's actually what you want, then the laws are the ultimate cheat code. The laws tell you how you can get the thing that you actually want the most, and then you delight in the law of the Lord. I wonder if you look at your own life and say, yeah, I've done that. I found myself delighting in the law of the Lord because that gives me the directions whereby I can live my life to please and glorify him because there's nothing better than walking with him and walking closely with him. It's the best this world has to offer. Your ambitions shift. When you want Jesus, you actually want Jesus. I know we, everybody says it. You actually want Jesus more than the other stuff. More than money or success or popularity or fame or being well-liked or just whatever. Whatever the world says is such a big deal. When you actually want God more than those things, it gives rise to this deep, irrepressible joy. And here's why. Here's why. It's very simple. Because you start to realize this incredible thing. If Jesus is what you actually want the most, then that means you can actually have what you want the most. That's where the joy comes from. That's the delight. Because you get the desires of your heart. Uh, Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And this gets misinterpreted a lot. People go, oh, well, I want a Ferrari. or I want a really hot girlfriend. Or I want an awesome career. Or just fill in the blank. That's what I want. But it starts with take delight in the Lord. And when you take delight in the Lord, what happens through that process, your heart is for the Lord. And what you want the most is to live well for him and to walk closely with him. That becomes the desire of your heart. And then he gives you the desire of your heart. 
if you, the thing that like you really want the most, honestly, is like security or power or health or wealth or to be well-liked or honestly, any of the, any of the things that the world says you should be working for. I don't know how to put this delicately, so I'm just going to put this indelicately. If that's the things that you want, then you're pretty much just screwed for this entire life. You're just screwed. You are. And, and, and here's why. It's also really simple. Number one, because the odds of getting any of those things, very small. The odds of getting all of those things, which is what we want, the odds of getting all of those things, almost zero. And then how about this little human observation? I mean this sincerely. Dear God in heaven, please have mercy on those poor people who beat the odds and get all of those things. They actually get all of those things. Those people that have the world on a string, have you ever noticed, surely you have, that they're the most jacked up people in the world? Why? Because they got everything they wanted and they're still empty. They're still a mess. But if what you actually want is Jesus, if what you actually want is to live well for him in everything, then you can just have it. You can have it. And that knowledge on its own is absolute delight. Step two is delight because what you really want is what you really need and it's all yours for the taking. Let me say one thing on the side here. I'll come over to the side. Um, surely you're aware of this. Um, I don't know how much it's really increased but, uh, or if just maybe the language has become more familiar but more and more people it seems are deconstructing their faith. They are choosing not to believe what they have believed in the past about the word of God and church and scripture. They are deconstructing. There's a lot of things that weigh into that. I certainly can't make the whole list, but I feel pretty strongly about what I think is number one reason on the list. Um, and I think it's because these people realize that they have been sold a bill of goods. Um, here's what they were told. Come forward, um, say the prayer, um, and then you get eternal life um, if you're sincere in that. And that's so true. And then they also say, um, and then you also get, as part of the deal, like you get eternal life for in the sweet by and by. But right now, you get peace and joy and delight and rest for your weary soul. You walk in victory. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and might have it abundantly. You get abundant life. You get abundant life. And people go, that sounds great. I'm in. So they take step zero and they stay at step zero. And years pass. And they look around and go, you know what? I don't, this whole thing about abundant life and victory and peace and joy and rest for my soul and being truly fulfilled, I don't, ha I don't have that. And not only that, I'm looking around at the church and all these people that I, that I worship with, and you know what? They don't have it either. They're kind of just like everybody else. They have all the same vices as everybody else. They get divorced at the same rate as everybody else. They don't look or act or seem or appear really all that different from anybody else. And nobody, it seems, except for these few exceptions, actually have this joy and this delight and this victory and this peace. Why? Because they were sold a bill of good that says, take step zero and you're done. Take step zero, you get the fruit of step two. And no one has come along and said, guys, you don't get step two until you take step one. You have to take serious progress. If your life doesn't, doesn't pull into alignment with ultimate reality and the truth of Jesus, it's going to stay a mess. Saved or unsaved, your day-to-day -day life will be a mess 
if you don't bring it into alignment with the ultimate truth and submit to the king of the universe. You don't get step two if you skip step one. And increasingly, people are realizing, hey, this isn't, I've been sold a bill of goods. This doesn't deliver. Christianity doesn't deliver on what they say. And I look all around, I don't see it. And then at that point, when they've got confirmation bias and then one remotely plausible argument against Christianity and the whole thing's gone. Guys, you get step two after you've made serious progress in step one and not before. I want to be very clear. All right, now, step three. Um, and we're actually going to look to our text for step three. How about that? Psalm 92. And what we're going to do, we're going to do this fairly quickly here. We're going to see these first two steps um, in the psalm. And then we're going to see what the psalmist says about the promise of step three. And we're just going to sort of peer into what step three looks, at, looks like together here. Um, and then in, later in the series, we'll, we'll pick up uh, more um, about steps two and three. Psalm 92, one and two. I want you to notice at the beginning, it gives a little description. It says, a song to be sung on the Sabbath day. It's an important note. So this is a good tune for church. Verses one and two. It's good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to the Most High. It's good. It's good. It's good to proclaim your unfailing love in the morning and your faithfulness in the evening. So I'm just going to pause here, and I'm going to say those first two verses, I hope you can see it, is anchored in step one. First of all, it's a song for the Sabbath. So that means this person is committed to gathering and worship. He's a part of his church. The community of the church is deeply valued in this person's life. And in verse two, he says there's joy. There's joy that is expressed in devoting time to the Lord every morning, every evening. What's clear is this is a person who is taking step one. The fruit of that is in verses four and five. You thrill me, Lord, with all you have done. You thrill me with all you've done for me. I sing for joy because of what you have done. Oh Lord, what great works you do. How deep are your thoughts. This person is overwhelmed. The psalmist is, I love that this word is in here, thrilled by the Lord. Sheer joy, sheer delight. This person is experiencing the delight of step two. And then for step two, step three, which is depth, um, one of the things I want you to notice before we jump into this is that the psalmist is kind of self-aware and uh, they stop making personal references, talking about their delight or their commitment. Um, he starts talking about other people. It's like, there's, it's like he's delighting in the Lord, right? But then he leans in and he's like, but there are these other people. They're like, he calls them the godly, the godly. He's like, they're, they're, let me just tell you about these people. All right, here's what he says. Verse 12. But the godly will flourish like palm trees and grow strong like the cedars of Lebanon. For they are, picture this, they are transplanted to the Lord's own house. They flourish in the courts of our God. Even in old age, they will still produce fruit. They will remain vital and green. They will declare the Lord is just. He is my rock. There is no evil in him. I love this language. Um, I love this idea of them being transplanted. He's saying, I know these people, they're, they're, inc they're these incredible godly people. And they're here. I mean, they're my friends. I know them. They're here, of course. But they're like not, they're, they're rooted and they're grounded in the Lord's house. It's just different. <laughs> they're here in a different way than everybody else. And he goes, they're literally anchored in heavenly soil. And they're deeply anchored and rooted in that soil. 
And, and, and here's the picture that he gives that I want us to think on for just a minute. David, you can come on up, help us. Um, he says, uh, think about this, it's simple, but it's worth reflecting on. He says, these godly people, they're like palm trees and they're like cedar trees at the same time. Palm trees, cedar trees, same time. Heavenly soil, deep roots. Now, uh, we know this about palm trees. Palm trees are incredible. Um, deep root systems, even in sand, right? And they're able to withstand these unbelievable storms. Hurricanes come raging. You can see lots of pictures of devastated buildings just absolutely flattened and all the palm trees standing up, doing fine. Why? Because they have these really deep roots, but they can bend and they can flex and they can wave with the wind. They're just so flexible. They give. They give. Cedar trees, on the other hand, are completely different than that. Also deep roots, but they are absolutely unbending. They are unbending. In fact, um, it's pretty common um, if a farmer has a particularly vulnerable crop, maybe it's just not very hardy plants. What they'll often do is surround that part of the garden with cedar trees. Because cedar trees are so unbending that when the, the storms come through that would take out the weaker crops, they stand against that wind, they don't give an inch, and they break the force of that wind to protect the garden that they're surrounding. And so David paints this picture, he goes, they're these people, they're absolutely rooted in heavenly soil, and they can be like so flexible, and reasonable, and understanding, they can bend, flex when it's appropriate to bend and flex, but also when it's not appropriate to bend and flex, when it's not appropriate to compromise, then they are rigid and they are strong and they don't give an inch. And they're both. And here's just what I, I wanna point out really simply. The time is coming and is now come. <laughs> we need step three Christians. Deep roots. You know how to be flexible and reasonable. Great listeners. But at the same time, know when to be strong and unmoving and unbending and refuse to compromise. We need, like never before, step three Christians. And what I see I've prayed like never before. There's lots of step zero Christians. And I'm speaking about the church, capital C. I don't have anybody in mind. I'm not coming after our local church. I just, I just think there's a lot of step zero Christians. They came forward and they said the prayer and they took the step that actually requires nothing of them but faith, faith that was given to them by the Lord himself and they haven't even taken step one. And as a result, they never experienced the delight of stage two, and they never bring this tremendous gift to the world that is the depth of step three. So what we're gonna do, um, what I'd like to invite you to do uh, for Selah, we do this every week, a couple of minutes to reflect on our own and the ideas that we make this as personal as we possibly can. I, I, I am hoping that you'll just be still and you'll consider step one, the dual meaning there of discipline. 
where you choose to walk in spiritual disciplines, prayer, study of scripture, meaningful community, confession of sins, Sabbath, living generously in open-handed lives. Would you honestly consider whether or not you've made serious progress on step one? If so, then you can also be able to really resonate with the delight of step two, because the further you make it down step one, the more you experience the beauty of step two. But if you're left wondering, man, does this, all these promises about abundant life and peace and joy and victory and rest for my soul, like, is that even a thing? It is a thing, but it's just not step one. So let's just be still. Let's invite the Lord to speak to us, challenge us. I'll get us started in that prayer. Holy Spirit, please come and speak to us. We're so grateful for your mercy. It's extended to us, God. We're thankful for step zero, that through no doing of our own, you rescued us, delivered us, called us pure, righteous, made us whole. Thank you. But perhaps for some of us, or perhaps for many of us, we've never seriously committed to taking step one. I pray, Lord, that a sense of real resolve would build up in this room. That we would resolve, that we would covenant with you. We're actually going to organize our life around the truth of Scripture. We're actually going to commit ourselves to prayer, to your word, to community, to generosity, to sharing our faith, these spiritual disciplines. That you can purge us so we might find the delight of knowing you. Take a moment to pray on your own.